All right. Welcome back to Rejects Book Club, where Constance, a.k.a. me, reads y'all a chapter a day. The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle. Chapter 5. All that Smendrick remembered later of his wild ride with the outlaws was the wind, the saddle's edge, and the laughter of the jingling giant. He was too busy brooding over the ending of his hat trick to notice much else. Too much English, he suggested to himself, overcompensation. But he shook his head, which was difficult in his position. The magic knows what it wants to do, he thought, bouncing as the horse dashed across the creek. But I never know what it knows, not at the right time anyway. I'd write it a letter if I knew where it lived. Brushes and branches raked his face, and owls hooted in his ears. The horses had slowed to a trot, then a walk. A high, trembling voice called out, Halt! And give the password. Damn, here we go, Jack Dingle muttered. He scratched his head with a sound like sawing, raised his voice, and answered. A short life and a merry one, here in the sweet greenwood, jolly comrades, unite to victory plighted. Liberty, the thin voice corrected, to liberty plighted. The L sound makes all the difference. Thank you. To liberty plighted. Comrades united. No, no. I said that. A short life and a merry one? Jolly comrades? No. Not, that's not it. Jack Jingley scratched his head again and groaned. To liberty plighted? Give me a little help, will you? All for one and one for all, the voice said obligingly. Can you get the rest yourself? All for one and one for all. I haven't, the giant shouted. All for one and one for all. United we stand, divided we fall. He kicked his horse and started again. An arrow squealed out of the dark, sliced a wedge from his ear, nicked the horse of the man riding behind him, and skittered away like a bat. The outlaws scattered to the safety of the trees, and Jack Jingley yelled with rage. Damn your eyes. I gave the password ten times over. Let me in my hands over seat. We changed the password while you were gone, Jack. The voice came out of the sentry. It was too hard to remember. Ah, you changed the password, did you? Jack jingly dabbed at his bleeding ear with a fold of a smendrick coat. And how is it that you know that, you brainless, tripeless, liverless git? Don't get mad at me, Jack, the sentry answered soothingly. You see... It doesn't really matter if you don't know the new password, because it's so simple. You, just like a giraffe, call out. The captain thought of himself. Call like a giraffe? The giant swore till even the horses fidgeted with embarrassment. You ninny, a giraffe makes no sound at all. The captain might as well have to call us like a fish or a butterfly. I know, that way. Nobody can forget the password, even you. Isn't the captain clever? There's no limit to this man, Jack Jingling said, wondering. But see here, what's to keep a ranger or one of the king's men from calling like a giraffe when you yell at him? Aha, the sentry chuckled. That's where the cleverness of it lays. You have to call three times, two long and one short. Jack Jingling sat on his horse, rubbing his ear. Two long and one short, he sighed pleasantly. Ah, oh, well... It's no more foolish than he'd have time, no password at all, and shot any who answered the challenge. 
two long and one short, right? He rode on through the trees, and his men trailed after. Voices murmured everywhere ahead, selling his Robert bees. As they drew nearer, Smendrick thought that he could make out a woman's tone among them. Then his cheek felt firelight, and he looked up. There, halted in a small clearing where another ten or twelve men sat around a campfire, fretting and grumbling, the air smelled of burned beans. A freckled, red-haired man, dressed in somewhat richer rags than the rest, strode forward to greet them. Well, Jack, he cried, who is it you bring us, comrade or captive? Over his shoulder, he called to someone. Add some more water to the soup, love. There's company. I don't know what he is myself, Jack Jingley rumbled. He began to tell the story of the mayor and the hat, but he hardly reached the roaring descent upon the town when he was interrupted by a small, thin thorn of a woman who came pushing through the ring of men to shrill. I'll not have it, Cully. The soup's no thicker than sweat as it is. She had a pale, bony face with fierce, tawny eyes and the hair the color of dead grass. And who's this long lout, she asked, inspecting Smendrick as though he were something she had found sticking to the sole of her shoe. He's no townsman. I don't like to look at him. Slit as wizard. She had meant to say either weasel or gizzard, but he said said both. But the coincidence trailed down Smendrick's spine was like wet seaweed. He slid off Jack Jingley's horse and stood before the outlaw captain. I am Smendrick the magician, he announced, swirling his cloak in both hands until it billowed feebly. And you are truly the famous Captain Cully of Greenwood, boldest of the bold, the freest of the free. A few of the outlaws snickered, and the woman groaned. I knew it, she declared. Gut him, Cully, from gill to gull, before he does you the way the last one did. But the captain bowed proudly, showing an edgy, an eddy of baldness on his crown, and answered, That I am. He who hunts me for my head shall find a fearful foe, but he who seeks me as a friend may find me in and now. How do you come here, sir? On my stomach, says Smendrick, and unintentionally but in friendship nonetheless, though the leman doubts it. He added not, nodding to the thin woman. She spat on the ground. Captain Cully grinned and laid his arm warily among the women's sharp shoulder. Ah, that's only Molly Grew, he explained. The guards me better than I do myself. I'm generous and easy, to the point of extravagance, perhaps. An open hand to all fugitives from tyranny. That's my motto. It's only natural that Molly should become suspicious, pinched, dour, prematurely old, even a touch tyrannical. But bright balloons need to not at one end, huh, Molly? But she's a good heart, a good heart. The woman shrugged herself away from him, but the captain did not turn his head. You're welcome here, sir, sorcerer, he told Smendrick. Come to the fire and tell us your tale. How do they speak of you in my country? What have you heard of the dashing Captain Cully and his band of freemen? Have a taco. Smendrick accepted the place by the fire, graciously, graciously declined the great morsel, and, remind, and replied, I've heard that you are the friend of the helpless and the enemy of the mighty, and that you and your merry men lead a joyous life in the forest, stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. 
I know the tale of how you and Jack Jingley created one crown, one another's crowns with quarter staves and became blood brothers thereby. And how you saved Molly from marriage to an old rich man her father had chosen for her. In fact, Smendrick had never heard of Captain Cully before the evening, but he had a good grounding of the Anglo-Saxon folklore. He knew the type. And of course, he hazarded it. There was a certain wicked king. Haggard. Rotten ruin him, Cully cried out. Ay, there's not one here, but been done wrong by King Haggard, driven from his rightful land, robbed of his ranks and rents, skinned out of his patrimony. They live only for revenge, mark you, magician. And one day will pay such a re- and one day Haggard will pay such reckoning. A score of shaggy saddles hissed descent, but Molly Grew's laughter fell like hail, rattling and stinging. Perhaps he will, she mocked. But it won't be such chattering cravings he'll pay it. His castle rots and totters more each day, and his men are too old to stand up in armor, but he'll rule forever. For Captain Cully dares. Smendrick raised an eyebrow, eyebrow, and Cully flushed radish red. You must understand, he mumbled. King Haggard has the bull. Ah, the bull. The red bull? Molly hooted. I tell you what, Cully, after all these years in the woods with you, I've come to think that the bull's nothing but a pet name that you give to your cowardice. If I hear that fable once more, I'll go down to Haggard myself, and you know for a enough, Cully roared. Not before strangers. He tugged at his sword, and Molly opened her arms to it, still laughing. Around the fire, greasy hands twiddled dagger hilts. The longbows seemed to string themselves, but Smendrick spoke up them, seeking to salvage Cully's sinking vanity. He hated family scenes. They sing a ballad of you in my country, he began. I forget just how it goes. Captain Cully spun like a cat ambushing in his own tail. Which one, he demanded. I don't know, Smendrick answered, taken aback. Are there more than one? Yeah, indeed, cried Cully glowing and growing as he as though the pregnant with pride willie gents willie gents where's the lad a lank-haired youth with a lute and pimple shambled up sing one of my exploits for the gentleman captain cully ordered him sing the one about how you join my band i've not heard it since last tuesday the minstrel sighed struck a chord and began to sing a wobbly counter contentator oh it was Captain Cully came riding home from slaying the king and gay deer <laughs> when whom she spied but a pale young man came dripping over the leer. What a news, what a news, my pretty young man. What ails you? What say so deep? Is it for the loss of your lady fair or you but a scrabbit of grief? I am nay scrabbit, whatever that means, and my grief is as well as grief may be. But I do sigh for my lady fair, for whom my brothers have riven from me. I am Captain Cully of the sweet Greenwood, and all the men in my call are fierce and free. If I do rescue you, fair lady, what service will you render me? If you do rescue my fair lady, I will break your nose, you silly gawk. But she wore an emerald at her throat, which my three brothers also took. Then the captain has gone to the three bold thieves, and he made his sore barth shiver and sing. Yet may the last 
I'll have the stain, for it's fit for a crown of the royal king. <laughs> now comes the best part, Cully whispered to Smendrick. He was bouncing eagerly on his toes, hugging himself. Then it's three cloaks off, and then the three swords out, and then it's swords whistling like tea. By the, bot by the faith of my body, says Captain Cully. Now you shall have neither stain nor she. And he's driven them up, and he's driven them down, and he's driven them up to fro like sheep. Like sheep, Cully breathed. He rocked and hummed and parried three words with his forearm for the remaining 17 stanzas of the song, rapturously oblivious to Molly's mockery and the restlessness of his men. The ballad ended at last, and Smendrick applauded loudly and earnestly, complimenting Willie Gentle on his right-hand technique. <laughs> that was so hard to do. <laughs> I'll call it Alan Adele picking, the minstrel answered. He would have expounded further, but Cully interrupted him, saying, Good Willie, good boy, now play to the others. He beamed at what Smendrick hoped was an expression of pleased surprise. I said that there were several songs about me. There are 31 to be exact, though none are in the child's collection just at present. His eyes widened suddenly, and he gasped at the magician's shoulders. You wouldn't be Mr. Child himself, now would you, he demanded. He often goes seeking ballads, so I've heard, disguised as a plain man. Smendrick shook his head. No, I'm very sorry, really. The captain sighed and released him. It doesn't matter, he murmured. One always hopes, of course, even now, to be collected, to be verified, annotated, to have variant visions, even to have one's authenticity doubted. Well, well, never mind. Sing the other songs, Willie Lad. You'll need to practice one day, when your field recorded. The outlaws grumbled and scuffed, kicking at the stones. A hoarse voice bawled from a safe shuttle. No, Willie, sing us a true song. Sing us the one about Robin Hood. Who is that? Cully loosened swords, clackled in his sheath, as he turned from side to side. His face suddenly seemed as pale and wary as a used lemon drop. I did, said Molly Grew, who hadn't. The men were bored with ballads of your bravery, Captain Darling, even if you did write them all yourself. Cully winced and stole a side glance at Smendrick. They can still be folk songs, can't they, Mr. Child? He asked in a low, worried voice. After all, I'm not Mr. Child, Smendrick said. Really, I'm not. I mean, you can't leave epic events to the people. They get everything wrong. An aging rogue in tattered velvet now slunk forward. Captain... If we're here to sing, if we have to sing folk songs, and I suppose we must, then we feel they ought to be true songs about real outlaws, not this lying life we live. No offense, Captain. But we're really not very merry. When all said, I'm married 24 hours a day, Dick Fancy, Cully said coldly, and that's a fact. And we don't steal from the rich and give to the poor, Dick Fancy hurried on. We steal from the poor because they can't fight back, most of them. And the rich take us from us because they can't wipe us out in any day. We don't rob the fat, greedy mayor on the highway. We pay him tribute every month to leave us alone. We carry off pound, proud bishops and keep them prisoner in the woods, feasting and entertaining them because Molly doesn't have any good dishes. And besides, we wouldn't be very stimulating company for a bishop. When we go to the fair in disguise, we never win at archery or at the stingback. I mean, we do get some nice compliments on our disguises, but no more than that. 
I sent a tapestry to the judging once, Molly remembered. It came in fourth, fifth, a night at vigil. Everyone was doing vigils that year. Suddenly, she was scrubbing her eyes with corny, horny knuckles. Damn you, Cully. What? What? He's, he yelled in exasperation. Is it my fault that you didn't keep up with your weaving? Once you had a man, you let all your accomplishments go. You didn't sew or sing anymore. You haven't illuminated a manuscript in years. And what happened to the viola de gamba I got you? He turned to Smendrick. We might as well be married, the way she goes on to see. The magician nodded fractionally and looked away. And as for the right or wrongs and fighting for civil liberties, that sort of thing, Dick Fancy said. It wouldn't be so bad, I mean. I'm not the crusader type myself. Some are, some aren't. But then, we have to sing those songs while wearing Lincoln green and adding oppression? We don't, Cully. We turn them in for reward. And these songs are just embarrassing, that's all. And that's the truth of it. Captain Cully folded his arm, ignoring the outlaw snarls of agreement. Sing the songs, Willie. I'll not. The minstrel will not raise a hand to his lute. And you never fought for my brothers for any stone, Cully. You wrote them a letter, which you didn't sign. Cully drew back his arm, and blazed blink among the men as though some of them had blown on heaps of coal. At this point, Smendrick stepped forward again, smiling urgently. If I may offer an alternative, he suggested. Why not let your guest earn his night lodging by amusing you? I can neither sing or play, but I have my own accomplishments, and you may not have seen the like. Jack Jingley agreed immediately. Hey, Cully, a magician! Would be a rare treat for the lads. Molly Grew grumbled some savage generalization about wizards as a class, but the men shouted with quick delight, throwing one another into the air. The only real reluctance was shown by Captain Cully himself, who protested sadly. Yes, but the songs. The child must hear the songs. And so I will, Smendrick assured him, later. Cully brightened then and cried to his men to give way and make room. They sprawled and squatted in the shadows, watching with sprung grins as Smendrick began to run the old flummeries in which he had entertained the country folks at the midnight carnival. It was paltry magic. But he thought it diverting enough for such a crew as Cully's. But he had not he had judged him too easily. They applauded his rings and scarves, his ears full of goldfish and aces, with a proper politeness, but without wonder. Offering no true magic, he drew no magic back from them. And when a spell failed, as when promising to turn a duck into a duke for them to rob, he produced a handful of duke cherries. He was clapped just as kindly and vacantly as though he had succeeded. They were the perfect audience. Cully smiled impatiently, and Jack dozed. But it started the magician to see that the disappointment in Molly Grew's restless eyes. Sudden anger made him laugh. He dropped seven spinning balls that had all been glowing brighter and brighter as he judged them on. On a good evening, he could make them catch fire, let go all his hated skills, and close his eyes. Do as you will, he whispered to the magic. Do as you will. It sighed through him, beginning somewhere in secret, in his shoulder blades, perhaps, or in the marrow of his shin bone. His heart filled and tautened like a sail, and something moved more surely in his body than it had ever had. It spoke with his voice, commanding, weak with power, 
he sank to his knees and waited to be Smendrick again. I wonder what I did. I did something. He opened his eyes. Most of the outlaws were chuckling and tapping their temples, glad of the chance to mock him. Captain Cully had risen, anxious to pronounce that part of the entertainment ended. Then, Molly Grew cried out in a soft, shaking voice, and all turned to see what she saw. A man came walking into the clearing. He was dressed in green, but for a brown jerkin and a slanting brown cap with a woodstock's feather in it. He was tall, too tall for a living man. The great bow slung over his shoulder looked like as long as Jack Jingley, and his arrows would have made spears or staves for Captain Cully. Taking no notice at all the still, shabby forms by the fire, he strolled through the light and vanished, with no sound or breath or footfall. After him came others, one at a time or two at a time, some conversing, many laughing, but none making any sound. They all carried long bowls or wore green, save one who came clad in scarlet to his toes and another gown in a friar's brown habit. His feet and sandals and his enormous belly contained by a rope belt. One played a lute and sang silently as he walked. Alan Adele? It was raw, willy gentle. Look at those changes. His voice was naked as a baby bird. Effortless, proud, graceful as giraffes, even the tallest among them, a kind-eyed blumbleboard, the bowman moved across the clearing. Last, hand in hand, came a man and a woman. Their faces were as beautiful as though they had never known fear. The woman's heavy hair shone like a secret, like a cloud that hides the moon. Oh, said Molly Grew, Marion! Robin Hood is a myth, Captain Cully said nervously. A classic example of the heroic folk figure synthesized out of need. John Henry is another. Men have to have heroes. But no man can ever be as real as the need. And so a legend grows around a grain of truth like a pearl. Not that it isn't a remarkable trick, of course. It was the seedy, dandy Dick Fancy who moved first. All the figures but the last two had passed into the darkness when he rushed after them calling, hoarsely. Robin, Robin, Mr. Hood, sir, wait for me. Neither the, na the man nor the woman turned around, but every man of Kelly's band, saving only Jack Jingley and the captain himself, ran into the clearing's edge, tripping or trampling one another, kicking the fire so that the clearing churned with shadows. Robin, they shouted, and Marion, Scarlet, Little John, come back, come back. Smendrick began to laugh, tenderly and helplessly. Over their voices, Captain Cully screamed, Fools, fools, and children! It was a lie, like, like all magic. There's no such person as Robin Hood. But the outlaws, wild and lost, went crashing into the woods after the shining arches, stumbling over logs, falling through thorn bushes, wailing hungrily as they ran. Only Molly Grew stopped and looked back. Her face was burning white. No, Cully, you have it backwards, she called to them. There's no such person as you or me or any of us. Robin and Marion are real, and we are the legend. Then she ran on, crying. Wait, wait, like the others, leaving Captain Cully and Jack Jingley to stand in the trampled firelight and listen to the magician's laughter. 
Smendrick hardly noticed when they sprang on him and seized his arms. Nor did he flinch when Cully pricked his ribs with a dagger hissing. That was a dangerous diversion, Mr. Child, and rude as well. You have said that you didn't want to hear the songs, the dagger, the dagger twitched deeper. Far away, he heard Jack Jingly growl. He's no, na he's no child, Cully, nor is he any journeyman wizard, neither. I know him now. He's Haggard's son, the Prince Lear, as foul as his father, and doubtless handy with the black arts. Hold your hand, Captain. He's no good to us dead. Cully's voice dropped. Are you sure, Jack? He seemed like a pleasant fellow. Pleasant fool, you mean? Aye. Lear has that air. I've heard it tell. He played the, gor the gormless innocent, but he's the devil for deception. The way he gave out to be this child cove, just to get you off your guard. I wasn't off my guard, Jack, Cully protested. Not for a moment. I may have seemed to be, but I'm very deceptive myself. And the way he called up Robin Hood to fill the lads with longing and turn them against you? Ugh. But he gave himself away that time. And now he'll buy with us through his father and send the Red Bull to free him. Cully caught his breath at that. But the giant snatched up the unresisting magician for a second time that night and bore him to a great tree, where he bound him with his face to the trunk and his arms stretched around it. Smendrick giggled gently through the operation and made matters easier by hugging the tree as fondly as a new bride. There, Jack Jingley said at last. Do your guard him in the night, Cully, whiles I sleep. In the morning, it's meet old Haggard to see what his boy's worth to him. Happen we'll all be gentlemen of leisure in a month's time. What of the men? Cully asked real worriedly. Will they come back, do you think? The giant yawned and turned away. They'll be back by morning, sad and sneezing. And you'll have to be easy with them for a bit. They'll be back. For they're not the sort to trade something for nothing. And nor am I. Robin Hood might have stayed with us if we were here. Good night to you, Captain. There was no sound when he was gone but crickets. My little friends right there, chipmunks. Hi, guys. <laughs> there was no sound when he was gone but crickets and Smendrick soft chuckling to the tree. The fire faded, and Cully turned in circles, sighing as each ember went out. Oh. Finally, he sat down on a stump and addressed the captive magician. Haggard some you may be, he mused, and not the collector child as you claim, but whoever you are, you know very well that Robin Hood is a fable, and I'm the reality. No ballads will accumulate around my name unless I write them myself. No children will read my adventures in their school books and play being me after school. And when the professors prowl through the old tales and the scholars sift the old songs to learn if Robin Hood ever truly lived, they will never, never find my name. Not till they crack the world for the grain of its heart. But you know, and therefore I'm going to sing you the songs of Captain Cully. He was a good, gay rascal who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. In their gratitude, the people made up these very simple verses about him. Whereupon he sang them all, including the one where Willie Gentle had sung for Smendrick. He passed often to comment on the varying rhythm patterns, the essential rhymes, and the modal melodies. 
Thank you for joining me. See you tomorrow. Yay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Trees, for uh, being my friends. Thank you, Redhead Bird. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.